Pragmatic Live, Pragmatic Marketing's webinar and podcast series where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product teams. My name is Rebecca Calajaris, the Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing, and more importantly to you, I am back as host for this month's webinar. So thank you, Kirsten, for stepping in the last couple of months. Now, many of you are already familiar with Pragmatic Marketing, but for those of you not aware of us until today, welcome to the family. Pragmatic Marketing specializes in training companies and product teams on how to be truly market-driven. We provide techniques for listening to the market and gathering market facts, and then using those facts to shape strategies and drive execution. And we've been doing this and doing it quite successfully for nearly 25 years. Now, as product team members, we are all obsessed with one thing, creating products that aren't just good, they're great. And one of the things that really separates those great products, the ones we love to use versus the ones we put up with while trying to minimize swear words, is the user experience. And here today to talk to us about user experience and how to use market evidence and interviews to inform your UX and build a tighter bond between your product and your customers is a good friend of Pragmatic Marketing, Peter Hughes. He is the founder and lead consultant of Assess. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Great to be here. Super glad to have you. All right, Peter, I know you have a great presentation lined up for us, and we want to save lots of room for questions, so I'm going to let okay. you take it away. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks for such a kind introduction. Uh, I'd like to take a moment to welcome you all to the webinar and take a minute to just let you know about some of the projects that I've worked on for the last 20 years or so. My UX work began as the internet was becoming part of the mainstream. In those days, Amazon only sold books, and banks hardly had an online presence. And a lot has changed, as we know, and since those days, I've worked on a wide variety of product teams, building such things as medical products to help doctors save lives, uh, on products that help engineers spot problems in oil refineries before they cause explosions, and on satellite systems that enable us as passengers to send email when we're traveling at bullet speeds. And the reason for telling you this is that what we're going to spend the next 30 to 40 minutes learning about are some core techniques that we use on all of these projects. These techniques can be applied to your projects too, regardless of whether it's a hardware or software-based product or whether you already have a product in the market, or whether you're developing something brand new. So let's take a closer look at what we're going to cover today. We're going to start by looking at what makes a product great. We'll then dive into a detailed look at what a user experience is. We'll break it apart. And next, we will then build on that knowledge and take a look at two techniques called contextual inquiry and journey mapping that you're gonna find very useful in the future. You'll be able to use these techniques immediately after the webinar for your projects and for any projects that you work on in the future. These are timeless techniques. So if I go through my explanation too quickly, I'd encourage you to replay the webinar. And as Rebecca said, there'll be a link sent out afterwards uh, where you can do this. There are also going to be a couple of free templates that you can download at the end of the webinar, and details will be provided then. And then the very last part, we'll talk about how we can apply these techniques to your products and how they're used 
for both products and UX teams to communicate more effectively with each other. And the last, uh, the remaining time, we're going to use to answer as many questions as possible. So let's dive in. We have a poll. And this will give us a sense of who's responsible for the user experience across today's audience. So please take a moment to select the option that is closest to your situation. There's quite a sort of mishmash of, of ways that people go about developing their, their user experiences. And so what we're going to talk about are, are techniques that any team, I mean, it, whether you've got a US, uh, UX team in your organization or not, you can start using these, these methods. They're, they're pretty straightforward. So let me take a moment to, to uh, introduce them to you in a moment. But first, I'd, I'd like to hear about any other products that uh, anyone in the audience has particularly enjoyed using. I'd like to get a sense of what those products are and what made them something great for you. Okay, so we've got a, a, a few things here that um, we, we can work with. So let's, let's move on, and uh, if we have time, we'll come back and, and talk about some of the other um, input that we've received. So when I ask this question, these are some of the answers that I, I often get. So it looks inviting. Well, any product that we use should look inviting. It goes without saying. But it needs to do more than that. It needs to be clear. So what do we mean by that? Well, uh, we need to make sure that it's clear what you can do with it just by looking at it. Uh, clarity can mean that it's clear what the next steps are. Um, it needs to be efficient. And efficiency means different things to, to different people. For example, um, let's look at taxes. Um, if you, it's coming up to tax time, and uh, there's a product called TurboTax for uh, personal tax filing. Well, their product asks many, many questions, and the user has to make hundreds of clicks, but they do it happily because it makes the task easy for them. If your CPA was given the same product, they'd refuse to use it. So this idea of always minimizing clicks is one that we want to be, be careful about. Not realizing that you're using a product. This is one of my favorite descriptions about what a well-designed product is like. They just do their job, and you can use them without having to think about what to do. When you have to stop and think, you're not being efficient. Sometimes a product contains unexpected useful features. So perhaps uh, Sean, when he started using uh, Grammarly, I'm not sure that he would have known that there was um, a way of comparing his performance to other writers. And the fact that he's put it up on the list sounds like it's a, a useful feature for him. Now, um, I recently, uh, I, I love watching rugby. 
and we just had a huge competition on, uh, that that that, uh, that was on. And one of the things uh, about the app that uh, was used that that, that the um, the organizers put together that I loved and was completely unexpected was that uh, I was able to look up when the fixtures are because the competition happens in Europe and you're always having to do these time calculations. And this was the first year that I didn't get up earlier than I needed to or that I got up, switched on, and saw that I was halfway through a match. All the calculations were done for me. It hasn't been there before as far as I know, and it was a beautiful feature that you know I just loved. Unexpected, made a difference to the experience that I had. It gets me. Well, I've been experimenting with voice-activated home systems. It's fun when it works, and it can give the impression of just getting my music taste. But it doesn't always happen. And there are times that it makes awful selections. Well, then it's annoying. So my point is that when it works, it's really impressive, and it really creates that illusion of, of getting me. And fun to use. And for some products, being fun to use is an important aspect of using it. Marketing systems are pretty boring pieces of software. But I use a product called MailChimp, which uses a lot of humor in their product design, which makes life a little more fun. Obviously, you have to be careful when using humor, and it's not always appropriate for products. Let's have a look at some of the, the, the other ideas that have come in. So Through the um, Q&A. We have a really good yeah. one. We have several in the Q&A section, and one is Google Maps. It says, every time I think of something oh, I want to do in Google Maps, boom, they add the feature, like showing speed limits, making lists of locations, adding stops, downloading maps, et cetera. Great. You can see that when you start to think about it, there, there, are, there are these products that stand out from the crowd because they just do a better job for you. And that's the key thing, is that the people that have created these products really understand the audience that they're targeting. And if you don't, you're just leaving your UX to chance. Because paying, if you're not paying close attention to your products, you're simply guessing at what your products need to deliver to create an amazing experience. Now, of course, just like the slot machines, you can get lucky and you can win big but it's not the norm. So how do you go about getting the details that you need for taking your product user experience from good to great? And that's gonna be the focus for the rest of the, the webinar. So to begin with, I want to introduce you to a couple of concepts that underpin understanding what a user experience is. And let's just look at a few examples of some situations here. Take the first one, for example. Let's say that you're interested in buying a new washing machine. Well, you don't buy them often, so you might start by looking at various online reviews, or you might know someone that's already bought one to get a sense of their experience. But your goal is to build up your knowledge until you feel confident that you can make a purchase decision. Let's take a look at another example. Uh, I actually had this, this happen to me uh, just recently, I rented a car, a model I'd never driven before. I got in, and I wasn't sure how to start it. I'm thinking of previous experiences of other cars that I've driven, 
but nothing seemed to work. There didn't seem to be an obvious place to put a key. Actually, there wasn't a key. Uh, I thought about my brother's car, which has a button on the dashboard, uh, but th th that wasn't an option either. So the question on my mind was how do I start the car? And all of these examples provide clues about the user experience that one might have and that we have to understand. So when you're hearing a person talk about a user experience, you want to look out for typically verbs and um, adjectives. The blue underlying words here might be some examples. These are the key words to, to, to look at. And all of these elements of user experience actually fall into one of three categories. The first one is touch points and activities. These are things that you do that relate to the product in question. And they may involve an interaction with a system, like a website, or it might be an interaction with a person. But we need to understand what these interactions are. Next, there's thinking. These are questions that are just simply ones that come to mind as you engage or think about a product. And the last category are feelings. Feelings are different from thoughts because they relate to emotions that can be positive, negative, that can be strong or mild. But the point is that you need to understand when there are moments when a person has a feeling, an emotional response to your product. And I'll give you an example, a very simple one. Uh, I just recently uh, arranged some finance, and I had to fill out a whole bunch of bank forms, not, not, nothing unusual. But there's one question that caused me to stop and feel pretty uncomfortable, and I needed to include my Social Security number, which I expected I would need to provide, but I also had to fax in the form. And there was no information on the form that gave me any sense that this was a secure, secure process or that any precautions were being taken to protect my information. And that information is information that we've been trained by the same people that ask the questions to be very protective of it. So once we understand that all, all uh, elements of user experience fall into three categories, there's another uh, idea, another concept that I, I want to introduce you to, and that's called the phases of the user experience. And it's easy to just give you an example to illustrate the point. So let's just look at an ATM, simple product, at least for the, for, for the user. And there are phases, there are three phases. There is the phase before you use the ATM, so there's a moment where I need some cash. Okay, so I uh, haven't used the, the product, um, but there's a need that's arisen. I then operate the product. And then after I've used the product, something happens, and I have to decide what I'm going to do next. And these phases have names. There's the trigger phase. Uh, and in this example, the trigger could be that I realize I don't have any cash and I'm going to go out this weekend. So once the trigger has occurred, there may be some activities that I need to perform before I actually get 
to the ATM and start using it. So for example, I might need to find out where the nearest ATM for my bank is because I don't want to pay fees, for example. And for your product, this means thinking about what you can do, if there's anything, to help your customer prepare themselves before using your product. The next step is actions, the actions phase. This is the phase that most product people think about when they think about a product's user experience. This is where a lot of time and energy goes into making sure that the product operates effectively. And in this case, we want the product to dispense cash when I've gone through the various security procedures. It's pretty straightforward, something that we're used to. And finally, there's the outcomes phase. And this is where there may be some additional activities that the user needs or wants to perform to complete their goal. So for example, um, the ATM's done its job, it's, it's given me the cash I, I requested, but it might produce a receipt that I have no choice of getting, it just produces it. So there may be an activity where I want to destroy or dispose of the, 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 the receipt and maybe not use the, the little bin that uh, some banks provide. Or I may want to get some $20, bill, uh, $20 bills changed into smaller denominations. I've completely finished using the ATM, but there are just some additional activities that I want, to, I want to engage in. And the point is that when we think about a product or service, even as something as simple as an ATM, it's important to understand how the product fits into your customer's world, and it's one of the biggest things you can do to improve the experience your customers have with your product when you pay attention to what happens in the triggers phase and the outcomes phase as strongly as you pay attention to what happens in the actions phase. So let's take uh, another poll. Let's do another poll. And here uh, we're asking, how much time have you physically spent on site at your customer's workplace to watch them work? And while we're waiting for the results to come in, let's have a look at a story about a situation that might happen and your reaction to it. And in this case, we're going to imagine that a friend of yours has asked you to come to the hospital with them. They need surgery. And when they arrive, they have a choice of two surgeons. Both are excellent, and they both want to examine your friend. The first one comes in and uses a magnifying glass and thoroughly inspects your friend. And the second surgeon takes your friend to another room where an MRI is conducted and a very thorough internal examination occurs. Now, as I said, both surgeons are excellent. So which one would you like to operate on your friend? And I'd imagine it's the one that used the MRI because the MRI provides a much better view of what's going on inside the patient. The second surgeon has got much better data to work with. And that's what we're going to look at now. It is the user, user experience equivalent of an MRI that will give you a deep understanding about your user and the experience your product or planned product 
needs to deliver for your target. So we've got the poll results in, and it looks like, uh, well, the results are that 11% visit customers regularly, 31% do so from time to time, 7% uh, don't have time to go out, and 4% say they have no, uh, no plans to go out at all. So uh, interesting to see that um, about half the group don't go out and visit, visit their customers, um, and actually 78% uh, don't do it on a regular basis. It's something that I strongly encourage you to do. Just getting back to our, our, our surgery story, I, I just forgot to, to, to mention, of course, that your friend has recovered perfectly from the surgery. <laughs> <laughs> just want to make sure we don't forget, forget him. So um, just keeping uh, this, this idea of, of uh, medical, um, medical uh, ideas in, in, in play, um, I, I want to talk now about the, the first of these techniques, the contextual inquiry. Uh, and what a, text, a contextual inquiry uh, is, it's a semi-structured interview technique where you spend time interviewing uh, your customers, your target audience, and you do so while actually on-premises at the place they work. And the thing about it being semi-structured is that you prepare beforehand a series of questions about the sort of work that they do, but you leave yourself open. It's semi-structured, and the, uh, so you leave yourself open to uh, let the conversation develop because there may be things that uh, the participant or the person that you're talking to wants to talk about that you hadn't planned to include, but nevertheless is useful. And so to give you an example of, of uh, what happened and, and why you might, might want to use this uh, type of technique is, um, is because I, uh, one of my teams was working with um, a medical uh, product company, and what they did was provide um, medical data to doctors uh, that work in hospitals, people that are on the move all the time. And there was a raging debate within the organization about uh, one of two philosophies. There was pretty evenly uh, half the company wanted to follow, uh, wanted to focus on um, screens that were densely packed with information uh, so that doctors didn't have to go through many screens to get the patient uh, data. But others argued that because these doctors were on the move all the time, that um, it was important that the data was, was big on the screen, uh, the font sizes were big, there were big buttons because they, they obviously shouldn't press anything by mistake, and there would be less chance that if the, if the buttons were big. And I'd love to take a poll and get a sense of, of what, uh, what, what the audience thinks which was the, the right way to go. Well, unfortunately, we don't have time, but you can take a guess. And for those of you that guessed that it was important to have densely packed screens, that was the right idea. Because what these doctors told us, and we would only have discovered this by going out and talking to these doctors, is that they never run around and operate their, 
their uh, mobile devices at the same time. They always are seated or they find a quiet spot somewhere and they're, they're stationary. But again, we needed a way to break the argument that was happening because it impacted the way the product was ultimately designed. And the point is here that details matter. Now let's look at some of the best practices for conducting these interviews. These interviews are done face-to-face. -face. They typically last 30 to 60 minutes. And you will typically have multiple target audiences for your product. And for each group, you want to arrange four to six interviews per group. And as you'll see on, on the side of the screen, there, there is a, uh, an image of something called a show me how script. Now there is a script that you can download uh, at the end of the webinar, and we'll give you details for that. But the important thing about the script is that you're preparing some questions about the different phases of using products that, that the um, audience that you're talking to uh, use. So you want to understand what goes on in the triggers phase. You want to understand what goes on in the actions phase and the outcomes phase. And by organizing your script in these sections that follow the phases of the, the user experience, you will save yourself a lot of time when it comes to analyzing your data. But there's some cautions that you should be aware of. Conducting contextual inquiry takes longer than you think. And it's not done in five minutes. It takes time to do the work properly, so make sure you plan accordingly. And as a rule of thumb, and I, I just give this to you as a rough guide, spending or allowing two, two interviews per day would be a reasonable uh, uh, metric to use for your planning. Phone calls are not a substitute. And as we've seen in the, the example with the doctors and uh, running around in the hospitals, the thing is that the details are important and we would never have been able to answer the questions we needed before designing the product if we hadn't gone and physically visited our customers, or in, in this case, the doctors. You can't get that level of detail over the phone. When you're conducting your interviews, don't spend time talking about your experiences. You have very, very limited time, and it's important that you spend as much of it getting information from your participants. The second reason is that when you start discussing your ideas, you run the risk of introducing biases into the conversation. So for example, Imagine the effect of you saying you like something or you don't like something and the effect that that might have on influencing how the person you're talking to responds to you. And test your questions beforehand. It really is important because as I say, you've got limited time, you want to be efficient, and the last thing you want to be doing is explaining your questions when you're on site. So test your questions beforehand, run them by a colleague or two to make sure they work as intended. And lastly, because 
time is tight, it always is, it's best to divide and conquer. And what I mean by this is that you have several people conduct the interviews. Now typically this work is done by your design team if you have one, but they don't always have the level of knowledge that the product team has about the uh, subject, they don't have the subject matter expertise always. And so if you have a product team that you're working with, I strongly advise that you send them out with a product person, at least for the first two or three interviews, just so they can get a feel of the sort of questions that uh, your, your customers might ask, that they understand the jargon, and uh, because uh, you're, you're discussing the a particular product area, you're likely to get the same questions surface regularly. So we're now going to assume that you've conducted a bunch of, of interviews. And the next technique I want to introduce you to is journey mapping. And when you've collected a lot of information, uh, I'd like to use this analogy. It's a bit like digging for gold. Here you've got a gold mine. It's huge, there's tons of ore that you have to mine and process in order to get a few grams of gold. And this is what, this is what happens, your contextual inquiry is like your gold mine, you dredge up lots of information, but you have to process it in some way to get the gold that you need to create remarkable products that deliver user experiences that your customers will love to use. So let's look at how a journey map is put together. So here's a template for a journey map. And you'll want to create a journey map for each audience group, each persona, uh, each target group of people that your product is aimed at. Because the novice experience, for example, is likely to be very different from an experienced user's uh, user experience. So to just walk through uh, this map, uh, on the, uh, at the top of the map, uh, it's important to name your map because you're typically going to have several of these that you produce. It needs to be clear exactly which one uh, or which audience group you're referring to. Um, down to the side on the left is the uh, persona details uh, or audience details. It's really helpful when you're looking at a map to get a sense of, you know, if you're talking to a novice, well, what are the key things that a novice uh, is interested in, in knowing about, what they do, what they look like. Um, the next stage uh, is to look at the, the columns that make up uh, the phases of the user experience. Uh, here we've got triggers highlighted. Um, but you'll want to be very clear about where you, you put your information um, as it relates to uh, each phase. In the center here, in this blue section, uh, this is an area where you're going to put uh, the information that you've collected. And I'm going to show you how to process that information in a moment. But it's key that the information in that area relates only to information that you've collected. And there are a couple of, uh, and, and you'll see that these relate to the elements of the user experience that we talked about earlier, the touch points, 
the thinking and the feeling. There are also a couple of extra rows there where if the participant talks about the overall experience, that you have a place uh, to put that in each of the phases, and you also have a place to record any pain points that um, you also want to include uh, in the journey map. Across the top, you have the user goals, and in this area, you'll notice uh, that, that uh, um, this is a place where you can put a more descriptive name for any of the phases. So uh, if it was uh, perhaps a, a medical product, um, there may be pre-op procedures that go in the uh, that are related to the user goals in the trigger phase. There is uh, what happens in the uh, operations phase under actions, and then there may, may be some post-op uh, activities uh, or goals that you might put in the outcomes uh, area. And the last area at the bottom is where you will note particular things that your team wants to focus on for your product development. These yellow areas are the only places on the journey map where you put internal data. And it's important to distinguish between which information has come from an internal team and which information on the map comes from outside, from your customers. So let's look at how we populate a journey map. Well, we've got to go back to the results of the uh, contextual inquiries that we've conducted. And for each interview, focus on one phase at a time. In this case, we focus on triggers. And using a different colored highlighter, uh, mark any items that relate to a particular element of the user experience. So in this case, we used orange to highlight any instances where a thinking-related comment occurred. And you go through all of the interviews looking only at the trigger section and collect the results that you've, uh, that you've got. The point here is that when you paste all these into a separate document, you can then uh, review them and look for patterns. And it's key, you're looking for patterns, for themes that emerge, because these are the ones that you then need to prioritize and then populate in the appropriate slot in the journey map. And then really, it's a question of rinse and repeat to go through uh, each phase, looking for each of the elements that you'll use to populate the different sections in the journey map. Again, a few cautions. You're going to need a journey map for each persona or for each target audience group that you're focused on. The last thing we want to do is to try and combine too much information into a journey map, and it becomes difficult to see patterns. So I highly recommend you don't do it. You want to also double check that all the information that you've put into the blue zone that zone I mentioned in the center of the journey map comes from outside your organization. Because you want to be able to go into a meeting and be able to say that this is an accurate depiction of what your audience 
of what your customers are thinking, feeling, and doing. And that this information comes only from your market. It's an external view. And lastly, focus on the highest priority patterns. It can be very tempting, especially when you've generated a lot of data from your interviews, and you really will generate a lot of information. It can be tempting to take every pattern you identify and shove it into the, into the journey map. Again, I would, I would encourage you to be, uh, to certainly prioritize those patterns and just put the top three or four into the map because you're going to focus on using that information in a moment. So let's just look at how all of that work is used. As I said, you go through your contextual inquiry, you, you pull out instances of, of say, thinking, thinking of um, uh, ideas that, you, that were expressed that relate to thinking in, say, the triggers phase. You populate that slot, rinse and repeat, go through and fill out the journey map. But let's zoom in to one of these areas. And let's, let's look specifically um, at the thinking questions that happen in the action phase based on some contextual inquiry that was done for an ATM. So in this case, um, what the participants told us that they were in a rush and there seemed to be too many steps. They felt it could be simpler. There were too many video ads going on that distracted some people. And this was relevant because some people felt that they were making mistakes or they might be encouraged to make mistakes. And there was no option to leave without a printed receipt in this case. Some, some people thought that this wasn't safe. So when you do your own journey map and these types of comments are revealed, you have something very concrete that you can respond to with your product. And the point is that your product is a solution to problems that your customers have. And the benefits of using this process are that you'll be responding to detailed feedback about what your, what your market is telling you where the friction points are, as well as what's working for them. And when you respond to these types of comments, you're keeping your team focused so that you don't go building features and functions that your market hasn't asked for. And lastly, one of the benefits of using a journey map and getting this sort of level of granular processed information is that a journey map is an easy visual summary that helps you to understand what's going on out in the market, and it's something that you can communicate very clearly with your other stakeholders. These are easy to read, and it, it's uh, much easier to read than going through stacks of specs and so on. And all of the work that you do with these techniques brings us to why it's important to do it. Because your product, as I said, is a solution to one or more problems that your customer base 
have. And for every stress point that you uncover and solve with your product, you create a deeper bond with your customers. And that is the key to building better products. So that was the information that I, I wanted to, to share with you. Um, we now have time for some questions. Uh, we have 15 minutes. So um, I will do my best to answer as many as I can. Awesome. We All have right. some great questions too, Peter. So uh, we're going to start good. with one. Um, that someone wanted to know a little bit about your opinion about UX versus what is called yeah. XS, sort of experience strategy or customer strategy, and understanding and kind of how yeah. you see that comparison there. Yeah. Well, all these all these type all these views, whether it's a customer strategy or customer journey, uh, some people call it, uh, versus uh, product mapping, customer mapping, and so on. All of these techniques are, I mean, think of them as a, a, a telescope where you've got multiple lenses that you can, you can dial up. I mean, you, can, you could dial up something that, is, is, um, that zooms in close, uh, and that's what we were talking today about, uh, a product and a journey map for, for a product. But your company may offer or probably does offer more than one product, um, and your customers may use multiple products uh, in order to get something done. So at a bank, uh, for example, you could do, you could produce a journey map for a checking account. But bank customers typically do much more than, than, uh, than look at uh, checking accounts. They may, there may be a whole host of other services that, um, that they use, and those are part of the customer journey that they have. It's a much more complicated map because we're sort of zoomed out a bit more and we're looking at the end-to-end -end process that a customer may use, which may involve using one or more products. So the difference between um, these different types of mapping is the level to which you're zoomed in. I mean, you wouldn't create a customer map in order to uh, look at, you, 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 you may create a, a, a customer map, but then you may also go and zoom in to what the journey map looks like for the use of a particular product. Excellent. All right, so we have a couple questions around the triggers, actions, and outcomes section of the journey map. And could you sure. provide a little more clarity, is that all just text? Do you see other things in those areas? That would be very helpful. Uh, sorry, can you just repeat the question again? So the journey map, yeah. can you provide a clearer definition of trigger, action, and outcomes? Okay, so let's, let's look at um, trigger. Let, let, let's look at uh, an ATM because it's a, it is a simple product. The thing is that before I have used the ATM, there needs to be a trigger. There, there is, 
we don't just use products for no reason. There is always a reason why we choose to pick up a pen, use the phone. You know, I, the, the, every product is used for a reason. And we need to understand what those reasons are that trigger the use for the product. And once, we've, once that trigger has happened, I need cash. That's my trigger. I need cash for the weekend. There, there may be some activities that occur, again, before I've actually gone to the ATM and used it. So the point is, from the trigger up to the point where I use the product, there are activities that may be involved. Then when you're using the product, there are specific actions depending on what I'm trying to do. So uh, if I'm trying to withdraw cash, there's a bunch of steps I need to take. Um, if I want to deposit some money, there's, some, there's a different set of actions that I have to take. And we can explore each of those activities within that activities phase. And then uh, in the action phase, and then the outcomes are the things that need to happen once the product is used, is used. So for example, if I have to put a report together, I might, um, I might go and, uh, I might use Excel. I put in a bunch of data, uh, I get some information out. And so I've used, I've, I've used uh, Excel to produce a report, which I then, might need to integrate with other information uh, that I've generated using Word or some other, other systems, and I have to bring everything together to finish the larger task that I started, which was creating a report, even though it meant I was using a product to help me, or several products to help me generate the information that I needed. We could do journey maps for each of those products, but then for each of those products, is there anything that we could do after using the product that would help with the process of completing the larger job that I had started? So the idea is that we want to think about anything that we can do to help our customers in the, at the time before they use our product. That could be something that could help them prepare for using our product. Maybe there's, if, if we have uh, some product that processes data. Well, in the, in the trigger phase, we know that that data's got to be used for something. So when that trigger occurs, there may be something that needs to be done to help get the data into a particular format before it can be used in our product. Well, those would be the types of activities we want to pay attention to in the trigger phase. Then there's actually operating the product that we uh, have that, that uh, manipulates the data. And then once the report or information that we need comes out of the system, there is that second phase or third phase, I mean the outcomes phase, where we uh, are looking at what we need to do with what the system has output. And if there are additional tasks and things that have nothing to do with our product itself, 
but that we need to do nevertheless in order to get the task that we're doing done, then we need to be aware of what those things are. And that's why we're always looking at triggers, the trigger phase, the action phase, and say that's one that everyone focuses on. But we need to be aware of what happens before and after using our product. All right, so do you recommend doing quantitative surveys to uh, supplement what you learned in the interviews? Is there a portion of this that's quantitative or well? Mm -hmm. Is this really the qualitative effort? Um, well, I highly recommend do the qualitative work of going out yourself and seeing your customers and, and, and doing the work. Um, some colleagues, well, I'll give you an example um, uh, of a project that, that some colleagues of mine did where they went out and they looked at how American travelers in Europe uh, use the railway system. And so they spent time in Europe interviewing all these American tourists in different countries, getting a sense of uh, what their experience was like in these different phases. That was important, but they also supplemented the project with a survey where they collected something like uh, 20,000 responses from uh, American tourists traveling in Europe. And that information uh, can be processed very quickly um, because it was all, uh, uh, you know, they, they had uh, specific uh, answers, uh, multiple choice answers to, to look at, so all the information could be tabulated. And that information can, in fact, be added to the journey map. And you would add it to the blue area. You might include an extra line where you could put some of the summaries of what you found out, particularly um, when it comes to things like what was the overall experience like. So if you can get the detail from, say, 10 customers of what the experience was like using your product and you were able to get another 100 responses from a survey, um, the key point is that it's still external data. And if it supports what you've already observed, then it can make the journey map a much more powerful uh, piece of paper, uh, a summary, because it's combining both the detail that you get from the qualitative with the, uh, the, the uh, statistical accuracy that you get from quantitative data. So yes, if you have the opportunity to mix the two, but you don't do one without the other. Because if you just do surveys, you'll never get the detail that you need in order to populate a journey map. Um, when using a journey map, is there a difference between mm -hmm. B2C products and B2B ones? No, I wouldn't say so. Um, I've used both. Um, I've, I've used exactly these techniques on um, on both. Because the thing is, what we're talking about here, a journey map is all about understanding the task that a person has to do. And whether it's a B to C type situation where uh, you're dealing with an online store or um, you know, e-commerce or whether it's you know, my, my ATM example, which is very, very sort of basic stuff. You can use exactly the same techniques when you're talking about B2B products because the people that 
are using B2B products still have tasks tasks to do. They need to get a job done. And they're using your product because either they have to, it's mandated for them, or because they chose to use it in the workplace. But in, in any event, the point is that they're still getting tasks done, and you can break all of the activities that relate to a particular product down into these three phases, the before phase, the triggers phase, the doing phase, or the actions phase, and the outcomes phase. Um, and you can then look for the things that, that people think about when they're using a product. Because whether it's B2C, and I'm a consumer thinking, hmm, I wonder if this flash will fit on my camera. Or whether it's someone who's producing um, some analytical report and they're thinking about dot, dot, dot questions. It doesn't matter what those questions are. But when you understand those questions intimately, you then have a situation where you can, you can respond uh, with your product much more, uh, um, much more effectively. Um, so it doesn't, it, you can use them across the board. I haven't found a product where you couldn't apply these techniques. Awesome. All right, we have a bunch of other questions, but we are out of time. I will say, Peter, though, okay. if people want to learn more about the journey map and, and mm -hmm. how to work with their design teams, that I know you and I are very excited because we are, are getting ready to announce a brand new course of yours called UX yep. Essentials yep. that we are offering through our Pragmatic Learning Network. So uh, we'll be sending out an announcement shortly, and actually we'll probably put information in the follow-up to this webinar for you guys who want to dig a little bit more in this topic because Peter has a lot more to say about UX and journey maps and, and testing um, that he'd love to share. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, all of that is covered in, 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 the, uh, in the class. I mean, the thing about the class, too, is when we talk about journey maps and contextual inquiry, we actually practice these things in the class. So. Um, unfortunately, in this format where we have to get through a lot of stuff quickly, um, it's not so easy. But what I will say is if you go over it again um, and you have a journey map in front of you or you have questions, please send them in because we love questions, as Rebecca said at the beginning, and we'll do our best to uh, get back with, with uh, answers that, that we see. We're here looking for patterns, and when we see a pattern, those can form great, uh, great opportunities for us to post, uh, post information um, in response. Great. All right, Peter, thank you as always for a great session. And uh, everyone else, thank you for joining us. Don't forget to join us next month. It's April 18th when we dig into our market definition box with Josh Martin, Director of Product Marketing at Logi Analytics, who's going to talk about how to reassess your marketing assumptions and how his company has begun to evaluate all of their long-term assumptions about their market. You've got our information on the screen. Absolutely echo what Peter said. Please reach out with questions. This is a topic mm -hmm. I know he's passionate about, I know is so important as we move forward in how to build really great products. Uh, so definitely take advantage of that. All right. Yeah. That does it. If you, yeah. if you want templates, uh, the, the templates are here at pm-ux.com slash webinar. Um, so there's a template for 
the journey map and there's a template for the contextual inquiry script that I talked about generating. Um, you can use that to uh, your heart's content. Awesome. All right. That does it for this edition of Pragmatic Live. Thank you all for joining us and have a great rest of the week. Mm -hmm.